Let me pray for us. Father God, here we are on Easter to celebrate your son. I pray today we would not just come to a church service. I pray today we would have a divine encounter with you. I pray you speak to us in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So here we are, guys. It's Easter, right? Right? The, uh, the, first, uh, the 7.30 service just got out right before you got here. And so you guys are in for quite a ride. It's always a tense moment when the um, preacher gets up on Easter. Like, what did you get yourself into? Or what did the person next to you drag you to? Like, what's going to happen? And in fact, the first service isn't, it wasn't two hours. It starts at 8.30. We're all good, okay? But whatever the reason you're here, whoever brought you, whoever you brought yourself, God has something for you today. Because on Easter, it's pretty easy. The message writes itself. On Easter, we talk about Easter, right? We talk about Jesus Christ who came and and lived a perfect life. He was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He was crucified, sacrificed, buried. And then on Easter, we celebrate the fact that he was risen from the dead, out of the tomb. What a great day. That right there that I just stated, that's that's the gospel. You guys heard that word gospel? Gospel means simply good news. And the good news of Jesus is that he died and rose again for us. The gospel means good news. And how easy is it to spread good news? It's effortless, right? It's fun to spread good news. I remember when Amy, my wife, was first pregnant, our first pregnancy, she told me, like, we can't really tell, you peop- tell anybody until this week, a certain number of weeks. And I was like, okay. And I told everybody I could find. I was like, just don't tell my wife. They're like, does she not know? Just don't tell her. Don't tell her I'm telling you. And I went, it was so fun. It was the greatest news. I'm going to be a dad. Telling good news. It is great. It's easy. It's fun. It's effortless. And as Christians, we are called to spread the good news of Jesus, which is so great. He, he, he redeems us. He saves us. He gives us eternal life. Um, Christianity, we're supposed to be these people that spread good news, but unfortunately, we have earned the reputation as people who share judgment, condemnation. That's bad news. Christians have gotten the reputation and we've earned it of, of telling bad news. And bad news is not fun to tell. It's not easy to tell. We don't like to tell it. In fact, I remember when um, Amy and I's pregnancy became our first of many miscarriages. And I had to go back to those people who I had so effortlessly told them we were having a baby and inform them that we were not. It was so hard. It was crushing. It's not fun to tell bad news. Why are Christians known for telling bad news? We've been given one privilege to speak the good news of Jesus. You see, in our culture, the gospel, this good news of Jesus, of Easter, has been marginalized and downsized. And here at the orchard, we're taking it back. We're, we're not going to be the people who spread bad news. We are a church who spreads good news, the news that is this, that's Jesus' love. And at this church at the orchard, we have a very simple vision. It's to love God and love people. Amen. Love God and love people. How hard is that? It's easy, right? But there's something important, and I want you to know about it and know why. You see, Jesus was preaching in Matthew. In Matthew 22, and when he would preach, the crowds would gather. They were amazed at his teaching ability. But there were some there who weren't, weren't too impressed. 
The religious elite, they could not stand that this revolutionary rabbi was speaking about life and full life apart from their regulations and their religious uh, strict commandments. And so the story, the plot thickens. It says in Matthew 22, verse 35, one of them, one of the religious elite, it was said he was an expert in the law. Now the law is what they would call the Old Testament. Okay, so the law is the Old Testament and also all the oral traditions of religion that they would put on top of it. So this expert of the law, he knew the Old Testament. It says he stepped forward to test Jesus. Now this expert of the law, he would have grown up learning about the Torah, the Old Testament. In fact, he would have memorized it by the time he was a teenager. And so he, this is like the LeBron James of religious elite. And they send him, you go, you go talk to Jesus. And so he steps forward to test Jesus. And he says this. He asks Jesus, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment? Whoa, big question. Now, if I ask you how many commandments there are, we all say 10. There's 10 commandments. There are 10 commandments that are on stone tablets. But if I ask you to name them all, well, it gets a little harder. But it's kind of simple, right? Like don't cuss, don't drink, don't chew, and you know, don't like the chiefs. It's pretty simple. <laughs> Somewhere in there, right? I mean, we don't really all know them, but there's 10, we do know there's 10 of them. There's 10 commandments. And interestingly, did you, do you know how Moses got the 10 commandments? Do you know how he got them? They were downloaded from the cloud to his tablet. (laughs) That wasn't in the first service. Now we know there's 10 commandments. There's 10 commandments. But did you know the Old Testament actually has 613 commandments that you would have to know? From how you cut the sides of your hair to what you can and cannot wear to what you can eat and what you can't eat. I mean, there were so many commandments. And then, and then, the religious elite, these leaders, would take those 613 commandments and they would just pile on top of them nuanced and strict regulations for religion. And so by now, there's thousands of commandments. And so when he asked Jesus which one's the most important, they're talking about all of these. Now, now we can't just blame these, these old ancient religious guys for adding regulations on top of God because I looked it up, and it still happens to this day. In fact, I did extra credit for the sermon. I went on Google. I went online, not just Wikipedia. I Googled these things, and I found, some, I found something very interesting. Did you know there's laws in the USA concerning church and these are real laws in mississippi private citizens private citizens may personally arrest a person who disturbs a church service which is why jails after easter are full of toddlers and babies (laughs) come on all the they're not all funny some of these are actually pretty some of these are actually pretty sobering in, uh, in Nicholas County, West Virginia, it says this. It says that no member of the clergy is allowed to tell jokes or humorous stories during his sermon. Another rule, that's actually a real law. Another rule that's unwritten, this is an unwritten law, but it's still understood. In the South, two Baptists are not allowed to recognize each other in a liquor store. True story. 
True story. I love this. I love this because Jesus, he has here a religious expert in the law who asks, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? He sets a trap to discredit this revolutionary rabbi. And I want you to see this moment. We're in the Middle East. It's a hot afternoon. There's a big crowd of kids and adults pushed in and there's noise from the crowd just like here today. And then there's the flock of religious elite with their religious traps sprung and the greatest expert steps forward, and the crowd hushes. Oh, what's going to happen? The disciples are immediately nervous because the most powerful people in their culture are confronting them. The wizened law expert looks Jesus in the eye, <clears throat> clears his throat, and then asks him, Which commandment is the greatest? Now, I wonder what Jesus is feeling. What a moment this must have been. A human who has made it his entire life work from childhood to memorize and know a sacred text <laughs> approaches the divine God incarnate who authored the text and, and tries to trap him. And it, God might have been a little amused, but I have to admit, the question's kind of a good one, right? Like, what's the, what's the most important thing? If there's 613 in the book, and that's just the Old Testament. And then there's all these thousands on top of it, even the 10. What's, what would, what's the most important one? Give me one to go on. Now, Jesus doesn't flinch. He is, he is God made flesh. He steps up and replies, which commandment's the greatest? This one. And he says this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? You love God with all that you are. You put God first above all things. It's that simple, but he's not done. He says the second commandment is like it. Love people as yourself. Jesus tells us that the Bible has one very central, very simple truth. Love God love people. He finished this statement with, in the, in the Greek it says it's a mic drop. He drops the mic and the crowd goes crazy. The moment has passed. He's answered the question with this simple thing, love God, love people. And at the orchard, we take Jesus at his word. And the DNA of who we are as a church and who we are becoming, the marrow of the people who claim this to be their home, who we want to be, is a people who love God and love people. And by the way, there's no asterisks next to people. All people, all affiliations, all orientations, all connections, all organizations, love God, love people. That's who we are and that's who we want to become more and more like. We get that from the words of Jesus. And people, I don't know if you know this, but that's great news for us today. It's great news because if you're confused by Christianity or assuming that you have to adjust your life to, to all these different rules of dressing and speaking and being, if you, listen, you don't need to follow 613 laws to follow Jesus Christ. And you don't need to follow a bunch of laws that you might have picked up through your experience and your background and your denominations to follow Jesus Christ. The miracle of Easter is that Jesus fully God came in the flesh of humanity. And if we believe in him, the one who died and who rose again, he grants us salvation. And then out of that salvation and rebirth, he says, my son, my daughter, love people, love God. Love God, love people. There's freedom in that. There's freedom in that. But I want to show you something. 
And that's this, that, that's compelling reason to follow Jesus, but oftentimes in church, we are told the most compelling reason to follow Jesus is because he gives us eternal life someday. But I wanna ask you, what if I told you the most compelling offer of Jesus is not eternal life? Like, what if the most compelling reason to believe in Jesus isn't fire insurance for someday far in the future, but because what he does in the present? I wish more preachers would preach that one. Because Jesus is not a savior for someday. He's the savior for today. He is the savior of now. And and if we were honest, if we could be very honest in here with each other, all this crowd, we would admit that it is in today that we need him the most. It It is now, Jesus, that I need something divine I need divine change in my heart now, in my life now. Eternity is so, seems so far off. You see, each of us has an identity. Each of you has an identity. Each of us sitting here comes from different experiences. You've been through a whole life on your own to get you to this moment. And those experiences and that past and what you've done and what's been done to you, do you know what it begins to do? It begins to define us. It begins to identify us. And if we were very often, if we were very honest with each other, we would find and we would admit that our deepest identity comes from the things that we have done or that have been done to us. We don't like to admit this, but our experiences build into us, don't they? Our past, good and bad, is kind of what makes us who we are. The decisions we've made, both good and self-destructive, We remember those. They stick with us. Some of our identities, unfortunately, have been formed by what has been done to us decades ago. You know, abuse abuse is one of those past experiences that robs us of present identity. You know, for me personally, there are times that I struggle with the things that happened in my past. I know I'm just the only one. Or maybe I'm just the only honest one. All of us have a past. And all of us struggle. And you see, we all have a past with sins and with wounds. Now, sin is a word that means you made a decision that wasn't godly and it wasn't good. And it probably harmed you and other people. And those kind of decisions, they pile up. But we have a past, don't we? And we have things that we've done that we're not proud of that begin to kind of inform us of who we are. And all of us, Lord, we have wounds. Some current, some gaping, some healing. But we have a past. We have wounds. Now what do we do from here? Because if we have all this, if we have all this and it's inf- you know, infecting us, affecting us, what does that mean for our present? What does that mean for the now? Well, oftentimes what happens is that what happens then begins to bleed into who we are now. And I'm gonna give you a list. And this list is not exclusive. It's common, It's inclusive. And maybe you kind of um, find yourself in some of these. But because of our past, we find that in our present, we face a lot of anxiety. The pharmacies of America would tell us that more than ever, this is something that we struggle with. I find that the thought of what if, what if, 
What if, what if anxiety and fear and uncertainty begin to grip me? Also, for some of us, it's anger, you know? Based on our past or our wounds and then throw in some personality, we have something that rises up in us and can be destructive. And because of this, some of us have made decisions that have hurt others and hurt ourselves and ruined some things. Some of us have anger that it's monstrous at times. Also, we have depression, also very common in our nation. Depression, the volume of your life gets turned down. The light in your life gets dimmed and the joy that you feel, the satisfaction in normal things gets diminished. And for some of us, this is something we would live. We would say, this is, this is me. Now, there's a ton of us in here who would probably jive with this one. Because in our world, we face this. Stress. I'm loaded. I'm overloaded. I'm short. I'm impatient. I'm burdened. And at the bottom of this one, we say, I'm weary. Just tired. Because of uh, some of those, de- those down there in our present, because of some of these in our past, oftentimes we run to something to give us a release, to give us an outlet, a temporary release. And soon what was temporary sets up permanent residence. What used to help us now and then is what hurts us every day as addiction and vice and secret sin find their way into our present. And then if that wasn't enough, we're human and life happens. Outside of ourselves, life happens and we face circumstances beyond our control. We lose a loved one. Divorce. Broken heart. We sit in an office and someone gives us a diagnosis. Life happens. As if that wasn't enough, We face tragedy. So there we have it, our past and our our present. Defined by what we've done or what's been done to us and dealing with what is in us now. And then the question is, well, what about my future? And then, what about my future? Because we have this here. And sometimes when we have all these things within us, our future is kind of uncertain. Hope is hard to, to muster up all the time. I'm not just talking about 30 years from now. I'm talking about tomorrow. I'm not, I need help this afternoon. Or what about next year? I hope, I hope I'm better next year. I hope we're still together next year. I hope I'm healed by next year. Have you ever um, lived vacation to vacation? I mean, you go away to a beach somewhere, and the second you get back, you're like, oh, Lord, when's the next one? Because of all of this, we go through our life just living vacation to vacation. So we look one year ahead. What about 10 years ahead? I don't know about 10 years ahead, but, but things have to change. And then what about eternal life? Eternal life? That's so far off the radar. I don't, I don't even know about that. And then we have a preacher stand up and tell us that Jesus wants to change some things. And that what he offers you is eternity in heaven. Now that's great. It really is. But it makes me just stop and wonder, what am I to do with this? What do I do with all of this? 
Eternity in heaven is great. It truly is. But what about my present and what about my past? What about me now? What do I do now? You know, interesting, when Jesus preached, when Jesus was on the earth and preached, he rarely gave the sermon, come to me, because I will give you eternal life. He, he did promise that. But in America, that's become like the number one carrot that preachers use to get people in. But that's not even the biggest claim that Jesus made about himself. Listen, Jesus isn't the savior for someday. He is the savior for today. And when it comes to all we face, the fact that he's a savior for today is great news. Because I want to start back here in our past. What would Jesus say he would do with our past? Like, what would he say? What would he say he does? He clearly states that your past will no longer be held against you. He says he wants you to stop holding it against yourself. He says that your past should no longer define you. He wants your wounds to no longer haunt you. The Bible says this clearly. Those who are in Jesus are a new creation. It says the old is gone and the new has come. And you no longer have to be defined by what somebody else did or said to you. A friend of mine who you're going to meet in a minute, when she remembers being a little girl, and you, you've seen these little girls in Easter dresses today? Oh, I love it. She was a little girl like that. Pink dress, she had pigtails, a little sandwich baggie full of a snack. She had big eyes and a big heart hoping her daddy would spend some time with her. And she remembers the day as she sat there dressed up with her, ready. And she heard her mom plead with her dad. You can keep the check. Just please spend some time with your little girl. And her little heart was crushed when she heard him respond, <clears throat> keep the check. I don't have time for her. That wounded that little girl so deeply and that little girl grew into a woman and for decades that defined her. But I want to tell you that that was not the end of her story. That's not how her story ends. You see, she came to faith in Jesus who, yes, gives her eternal life but also gives her redemption in her past and renewal in her present and her earthly dad failed her terribly but she has a heavenly father that she calls Papa and she's the daughter of a king and she lives it. She's met the savior of the now, not the savior of the someday. You see, the glory of Jesus isn't heaven someday. He reaches back into our past and those claws that hold on to us. And he says this, he says, your sins are forgiven. And he says those wounds that you took, those experiences, he says, I am breathing, I am breathing redemption into your life. You might have had an old story, an old past, but I'm writing something new into you. Your past sins, forgiven. And your past wounds, I'm gonna work redemption into them. But Jesus isn't done with the past because we've all heard Jesus will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. But what about the present? What about this stuff? What about this fun things we deal with? You know, he transforms our past and it, it helps to change our present. But he's the God of today. Because when we place our faith in Jesus, he takes these identities and afflictions and he begins to work redemption and glory into them. In our anxiety, 
we find that we have access to a divine resource of peace that surpasses all understanding. Hey, this peace surpasses your circumstances. Listen, when hell breaks loose around you, this peace holds tight within you. This is a resource of divine peace. The Bible says that he is the God of peace who gives peace at all times and in every way. And listen, I don't know what your story is on the front, but he wants to begin to work redemption into your story. What about anger? What about those of us who, who deal with this, this anger that wells up within us? Well, God is very clear in his word. He says this, that he will resource us with divine love and patience. It says this specifically. And I have seen angry people who've become patient, loving people as God has changed the inner core of who they are. They still struggle, they still fight, but man, God is changing their heart and soul. What about depression that turns this volume down and turns the light down? Well, we find in Jesus that we have a re divine resource to something that is so fun, so beautiful. He takes our depression and gives us a divine resource of joy. I did not write happiness for a reason because happiness depends on your circumstances being good. And most of us just wait for our circumstances to be good, <sighs> to be happy. That's why we love the beach because no one else is there. We want happiness, but happiness requires external circumstances to work themselves in our favor. And Jesus says, uh-uh, I can resource you with joy. So when happiness flees, joy can stay. And joy can take up residence in your heart, though the world give way around you. He resources us with joy. And what about stress? We all have this one. Jesus preached a sermon in Matthew 11, and he said this. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, rest sounds good, but it's not just like a nap. We don't need a nap, do we? Some of you do. <laughs> but he says, I'm going to give you rest for your soul. It says in the word, I will give you rest for your soul, a deep satisfying rest that the stress doesn't kill. But addiction, what does Jesus do with addiction? You know, when we, or, or in vice or in secret sin, he gives us access to re divine resources of courage and self-control and he brings light <coughs> to our darkness. When Jesus launched his ministry, he stood up and he said, this is his first sermon, he said this, he said, the spirit of God has sent me to proclaim. What's he going to proclaim to us? The power of Jesus is that he's the God of the now. And he said, I have come that you may have freedom. Freedom. Freedom in the now from what is taking you out. Now, in our tragedies, what do we do with tragedy? Because these things happen and sometimes, most time, it's not our fault, is it? We didn't choose that. I didn't choose for those things to happen. 
God promises that he is working something in the worst of our conditions, in the worst of our circumstances. God works his beauty. And it's called glory. God takes the worst of what we've been through and begins to infuse glory into it. The Bible says this. It says that God works even our greatest losses to the good for those who are in Jesus. Those tragedies in your life that just seem so dark and how could any glory ever come from it? I don't know, but I'm not God. But some of you have been on the journey long enough, you would say, I know this. I've seen this. He takes the worst of what happens and he begins to weave glory into the fabric. And what about our future? God resources, resources us with something in our future that is one of the most powerful, most potent words in the English language. One of the most, one of the most powerful ideas that man has ever known. When it comes to our future, God begins to breathe something into it. You see, this isn't just our eternal future. This is our future tomorrow. And God begins to give us something that changes everything. And maybe for some of you, this word is the only reason you showed up today. Because you just want some of this. And I'm here to tell you that there's a savior, not for someday, but today, who wants to give you hope. Hope that next year you don't have to be who you are right now. Hope that he's changing the worst parts of you into something better. Hope that he is healing and redeeming our past. Hope that he's at work in the worst of who we are. And hope for our future that he's got good things for us. I could go into more detail about all these things, but at some point, my preaching loses its effectiveness and there's something far greater than my words. You see, there are people who have lived these. They've had something written on the front of their board that has defined them and wounded them and hurt them and held them back, but that wasn't the end of the story. And you're about to meet these people and these are real life, true events and in some of these people's lives, he divinely intervened and changed their circumstances. In others, he did not change their circumstances, but he changed their hearts. But each of them would admit the greatest thing Jesus did was what he did within them. And the song they sing is so powerful that no matter what you've come through or been through, you come as you are. No matter what you have been through in life, your present does not disqualify you from the Savior of the now. And so as we sing this together, as we sing and as we see what's gonna happen, I want you to ask yourself, seriously, what would be on yours? What would be on the front of your cardboard? What woundedness, what lifestyle, what experiences, what words, what sins, what things would fill this for you? And we're gonna see what God does. It's beautiful, inspiring. And the reality is, each of us here today, we all have something we could put on the front here. Every single one of you has some past and some present that has defined you and has wounded you and who you deal with and struggle with. But the reality in a room this big is, for some of you here today, there is nothing yet written on the back. There's no redemption being working into your story. 
Jesus is the savior of the now, not just for eternal life someday. Listen, he came to give you forgiveness in your past, peace in your present, and hope in your future. And he wants to begin to take the worst of your story, the worst of what's happened, and to work his glory and redemption and forgiveness in it and begin to do new things and new works. The glory of Easter is that God sacrificed himself so that the front of our cardboard doesn't have to be the final word about our lives. It doesn't have to be the end of your story. The glory of Easter is that Jesus died and rose again so that he can begin authoring something new and he wants to start to co-author your story. And when we receive Jesus as our savior, God says, listen, let me begin to write hope into those old dry places. Let me author forgiveness in your past. Let me take those wounds and begin to author redemption. Let's write a new story. Let's take your tragedy and let me infuse my glory into it so that the world can see the beauty of Jesus is not someday, it is today. In the last service, I gave this opportunity, and we had about a dozen people say yes, because Jesus, if he is the Jesus for the now, some of you admit, I need him now. I realize I need him today. And for some of you here, you, you knew Jesus, you've known Jesus at some point in your life, but you have wandered. It doesn't matter how far, but today would you recommit and reaffirm, you say, I want to reaffirm my faith. And he welcomes you back with open arms, forgiven, no condemnation. The Bible says, no condemnation. If you are far from God, but you know him, and you want to reaffirm or recommit, today's it. If you're here today, and you would say, I have never took that moment to say that I want Jesus as my Savior. He's the Savior of the now. And it's available now. And he can begin to work redemption and forgiveness now. And so if you are here today and you're in that group that says, I want to recommit and reaffirm an old, an old belief in Jesus and make it fresh and new, or if you're here and you say, I have a new heart that I want Jesus now, for the first time I want to believe in him, would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, leave them up. Let me just, let's, God is good. He's the, he's the savior of the now. He, he wants to do great things. Yes, yes. Let's pray together. All of you pray out loud, but those of you who have your hand raised, pray with all of your heart and vocalize this. Jesus, I need you. I know you died for my sins. And you rose again. I give you my heart. I give you my life. Be my savior. I receive your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Jesus, this very day. For many of you today, you have just turned the card on a fresh and new life where God is going to author something great within you. Now, the best part about Easter is that he's not done with any of us. And I'm going to be right up front with you. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give it all away. We want you to come back and join us. Not because we have a bunch of regulations and rules that you need to come to, but because we love God and love people, follow Jesus, and we want you to get on a journey with us. We want you to journey with us on, toward redemption. And today as we go into communion, the symbol of Jesus' sacrifice, 
Something about the orchard is this. There is no class and there is nothing you need to do to be qualified to take this. Jesus in the Bible said, he said, do this in remembrance of me. If you would like to remember him in communion, then take the bread and take the juice and sit down and say, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice of your body and thank you for your blood. Say, Jesus, give me a new story. Change me. As we sing this last song, one of my favorites, that says, Jesus is better. Let's sing with all of our heart. Let's sing loud. Let's take communion and celebrate. If you're here today and you have prayer requests, prayer needs, you want someone to pray with you, we have people on the sides and the front. We would love to pray with you.